We're continuing on in our study in First Kings. I don't know necessarily if, ah, there we go. God's dream taught a schemata for Solomon to know what he oughta. I think that that is the title. And so where we're at today is being able to see that this is actually a prelude for what is the continuance of Solomon's ministerial duties as king. It's important to realize that it parallels a visitation that took place in chapter 3, verse 5, in which a visit in Gibeah was where the Lord basically said, ask what you will. And Solomon, in humility, was able to simply say, could I have wisdom, please? That would be great. And because the Lord saw his heart, then he was given not only wisdom that exceeded all men of all time in those days, exceptional only to the Lord who would come and be actually the embodiment of divine wisdom, but he would be given riches and fame to accomplish a work that his father had preceded him on through a desire in his heart that God would have a place dedicated to him. So we've spent actually quite a few weeks, four teachings on that and describing that as a picture of us having at one time been simpletons, but having the Lord move in our hearts, compelling us to come from the outside into the inside, we become templetons. We enter into a place that God's name is established, and we learn to understand God through his word, which is established, its doctrine. So that's presently where we're at. And the punctuation from what last week was, which was the dedication of the temple, extraordinary in every... The Lord makes a visitation upon him again. We can presume that this visitation is probably about 20 years later where he once was a 20-year-old. He's probably now knocking on his 40th-plus years. The temple has spent some time being extraordinarily built. All of the projects have been satisfied. There are other things that he will continue in, but it kind of gives us an idea of timelines that happen between what was an earlier visitation of God upon him and a manifestation of the fulfillment of God's word to him. And it would seem that now there is an instructional time for Solomon. One of the things that we know is it's important to never say to ourselves, I got it. Been there, done it, learned everything about God. I'm good for go until I go. Because we are one, carnal in nature, 
that God has resolved with his divine nature, but there's a warring that goes on. That warring is a daily battle. The enemy's intention is to kill, destroy, maim, take us out, to discredit God in his desire to see the best outcome in all of us. It's tragic, but what we are wanting to see here is that God has a victorious intention for Solomon. He has a victorious intention for Israel. He has no less a victorious intention for the church. So that kind of helps us at least be established right now, the importance of what is being spoken of in this text of Scripture. In school, one of the things that we would teach in language was identifying sentences. Kind of went something like this, declarative, imperative, exclamatory, interrogative. A little bit simpler than the title of today's teaching. Declarative, imperative, those would be statements that are made and they increase in terms of an intensity. That's important. Exclamatory, when you run into that, simply means there's a special mark at the end of that sentence which has a passionate display. Some people would call it yelling at me. Maybe this is God yelling at Solomon, or at least making it abundantly clear that the responsibility of walking in his father's footsteps will take great measures of focus. What we don't see as we move into it is the interrogative. That would be the question. What is God questioning me on? What is, what is the question that I have for God? Today, there may be questions that you have of God that you'll need to ask. Or there may be ears that you need to have to hear the question that God has for you. If it was of God and his sovereignty to visit one who was so extraordinarily blessed as Solomon, I suppose he would say he has that right with us as well. So without further ado, let me open my Bible. And being right now in 1 Kings chapter 9, where we'll pick this up, and the title, yes, being clever, God taught us Gamata for Solomon to know what he oughta. Solomon is being given a charge to know the best of what he is to do in the lineage of his father, David. That's God's heart for us as well. Some of you may say, okay, so fancy word, what's the schemata? Well, some of you that are technical might relate better if we just say a schematic. If you're engineering, if you're mechanical, if you get something in a box from Ikea, you need a schematic. They say it's easy furniture, but 
you miss one part to that, you might as well get out the glue stick and vices. We might be able to say that this is also related to a root, which is scheme. We might even be able to take that back to that which would be expressed for a scheme, and that would be a schemer. All of us can be schemers. We'll look back in the scriptures to find one who, in fact, was noted for that behavioral attribute. That was Jacob. He just always wanted initially to do things his way. He was wired for it, actually, because we know that at birth, he tried to get the first place. He was holding on to his brother's Esau heel, trying to say, I'm coming out first. That didn't happen. But everything about what he was about was being first. In everything that God already knew, he would satisfy without any strife. That's important to note. So that's the idea behind schemata, schemata, potato, patata. It's the Lord saying, I've got a plan. Follow the blueprint. I have actually the best outcome intended for you if you'll adhere to what it is I'm saying. So whenever we say or read that we might have ears to hear, it's important to say, Lord, that's what I need. I need to have hearing ears. I need to have something else. We talked about it on Thursday, a willing heart. So prone to have a heart that is hard that the Lord then, in the way that he does, works on it. Works on it by working things out of us bringing people and events along that compel us to say, it's not the way I want to be, and I want to return to the way it was. So as this opens right now, it does state clearly that this visitation is a dream. It's not a nightmare. There's a difference. It's interesting because there used to be a band. They're not any longer around. I never understood how they picked the name. It was called R.E.M. They were rather an eclectic band. They were somewhat in the rock genre, but different. They were philosophers, actually. They were cultural philosophers. They were not godly prophets. They were philosophers. And they've come to not in what probably could have been a better appropriation of their talents and gifts on what they ought to have done. To understand the schemata on what they ought to have done. For I do believe that everyone penning poetry and playing music has actually been given an opportunity to exalt God extraordinarily. How they answer that question, I do not know. Even the Beach Boys, to have an opportunity in those kinds of catchy melodies to extol God, coming so close but going so far. It came to pass when Solomon 
had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do. He is not being charged for doing what he wanted to do because we know that he was satisfying the desire of his father to the T. T's and dots, he's satisfied because he was following a schemata. What the Lord had put into play was a plan that David had dreamt about. We don't know that it was a dream, so we can use that word lightly, meaning that whether or not you literally have a dream from God, there are things that you dream about that are no less of God. This was a real life experience of a godly encounter. We don't have to question it. If you go back again to chapter 3 of this same book, about verse 5, I believe, you'll see that that's when the visitation of God through a dream took place. It will emphasize more clearly that that came in the evening. How many of you slept well last night? Dreamt beautifully last night? Oops, hands aren't up. <laughs> but that's okay. Because we deal in our sleep patterns with the things that, again, may be disturbing in our days. We've got, I think, the former governor of Arkansas who's advertising a sleep aid now. And I took notice of it since my sleep's been a little bit restless lately. There's a lot of pharmaceuticals that lend itself towards better sleep. He was promoting a non-addictive, non-prescription, holistic powder, whatever it is. But Solomon right now is having this encounter, and here's what it amounts to. The Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon, and the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, which you have built, to put my name there forever in my eyes, and my heart will be there perpetually. Not indefinitely, perpetually. Indefinitely, can imply there's a time in which it is loosely veiled indefinitely has an interruption somewhere in it when god says perpetually it means that from his eternal perspective he will not renege on that word even if there is consequence that needs to take place as a result of being displaced 
from the ordinances of God, the manner and means by which he is leading the nation Israel according to his father's heart, which followed hard after God. He is subject to the consequences and the nation thereof as well. We can find this out in Second Chronicles. You can turn there, just allow me to read it. It's in the seventh chapter. But the importance here, especially when I'm defining this word perpetual as opposed to indefinite, is a phrase that we don't find in where we are at. And you may say, how could that be? Because God desires that we search out the scriptures. This is a searching out of the scriptures in a parallel event. It's documenting the same thing. It's giving us a zoom in to a very important phrase. Here's where the phrase differs from where we will continue reading in 1 Kings. First, he appears to Solomon by night. Therefore, we know it is a time of rest. One of the best opportunities to garnish a dream from the Lord is at night when your body has worked hard in its vocation. It's to be a time actually when the mind can rest. And one of the best ways to rest the mind is to have it set upon the Lord. Have you ever gone to bed and said, oh Lord, that I might have rest and that I might dream, Lord, in that area and realm in which you speak to me? Lord, I'm tired of the nightmares, tired of the worry. I want to just rest in you. I've heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. That's a new phrase there from the preceding text we were in, place of sacrifice. One of the things that's important to understand about the rest is that it's for the requirement of the sacrifice. You've come here today. It was a sacrifice to be here. The gas tells me that. It's a sacrifice to be here today. Whatever you may have done the day before, you may not have recovered fully. It was a sacrifice to be here today. It's a place in which actually we are to consider in remembrance, holy remembrance, of the great sacrifice that God made through his son, Jesus Christ. You've sacrificed your efforts and energies to worship God with God's people, and it is to remember the sacrifice of God for that effort, for the life that you presently are living whether you like it or not, God is pleased that he gave you life and that you're looking to him on how to live life. That is important to know in a time in which lies fled from all outlets of communique in the realm of media and temperaments, emotions, crashed relationships. He hasn't broken his relationship with you. Here's another insight, though. 
That's what I was aiming for. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land and send pestilence among my people, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive them their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. What does the enemy do? He comes up with clever terms. Maybe clever titles too. Global warming. What if actually we took an examination of what has just been said and we said, this is divine warning. What's the next outbreak? Oh, it's the monkeypox. No idea why they named it that, but it sounds like it's coming. Somebody let it out of the zoo. I have no idea what it's going to look like on me. I have no idea if the requirement of that will be a pot said in which I scratch and ask, God, why me? Why now? But what the Lord is declaring to him right now is there are things that we can look at and discern, ascertain, why is this happening? And we can make decisions in which, like Solomon, he is to do as the de declaration of God has been given, as it moves into the imperative as there is exclamation to this, Lord, is this what I am to do? Is this what we are to do? And it takes courage. It takes doctrine. Though I will not get into the doctrine of Catholicism, I will say that the courage of one of those in leadership in San Francisco refused to give communion to Nancy Pelosi. Why? Because she has been an endorser, a proponent, a leader for abortion. Abortion is murder. It took somebody from their pulpit to be able to say, you do not qualify for this holy offering. There are great differences in faiths. I don't want to get into those arguments. What I'm saying is a spiritual man whom she claims to be as a spiritual woman is at disconnect with God's heart. Solomon will move on in listening to God with regard to the cultural distractions and sins of the nation that surrounded them, mindful that they were so easily susceptible to turning from God in righteousness and holiness and following after wicked desires in their hearts, the politics of their days. You may say, did they have that to deal with? Actually, they did. Moloch would have been a Canaanite god. He was actually shared by a multitude 
of other peoples who belonged in pagan uh, nations. And Moloch would have been the god in whom they sacrificed children within. He was especially sculpted to have a belly that was open, to take from the womb that had been opened a child that would be offered, and they would be offered as whole into this highly heated kettle of bronze fitted into this statue. It was child sacrifice. It was detestable. And only those who did not know God would have been able to have a repugnant attitude towards that. We're not a nation that has found that to be repugnant, unacceptable, until as of late, a decision very likely rendering a terrible law, a terrible adjudication from 1973, Roe versus Wade may find itself struck down, and it should. Will there be uprising? I don't know. I know that this is one of the things we need to do. There will be rejoicing in the wombs of those who silently cry for deliverance. Man will find a way around it, but there are men that need to make a decision, women that need to make a decision with regard to that. For God said, there is in the things that you see and the things that bring calamity to where you're at, association with the sin of a nation and of a people group, it's right that it is stricken. It was never right to have been legislated on. It's not necessarily the end of it, but what I'm saying is it correlates exactly as a pagan activity in sacrificing the life of an innocent child, and they did it. Their nations were punished for it. Solomon is being reminded that in the necessity of ruling fairly, adjudicating accurately with righteousness, great responsibility, Solomon, so hold close to me like your father did. This is saying to us imperatively, turn from your wicked ways. But notice the promise that was found in this. I will forgive. I'm going to hear from heaven and I will forgive. Anyone can be forgiven towards their attitude concerning this voting for those that endorse it. It's become one of those things that is greater than politics. It is truly about sincere piety, how we relate to God with sincerity, obeying him honorably. The Lord's promise, I'm going to heal the land. Wouldn't you like to see the rivers flow and the lakes filled up? Wouldn't you like to see the quenching of tornadoes? Aren't you tired of the pestilences 
those microbial creatures that invade our bodies and choke us and cause us to have to seek medical attention. Wouldn't you like that? Then the Lord says, talk to me. Don't question me. This isn't interrogative, but you may ask questions of me. Stop questioning me. You may ask questions of me. For I change things from the better. Removing you from the bitter, I change things. And that's a promise. Returning back to our text in 1 Kings, Verse 4, imperative. Now if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart. I like that. And it's important to actually understand what that means. Integrity has with it two implications. One means that it's honest and the other means that it has moral stability. You're honest in how you're living your life for God, and you're moral. It does not mean that we cannot err, meaning behaving immorally. And it does not mean that at times we are not completely honest in what we've done and where we're at. But it does mean that each one of us has the opportunity to transact with God openly. Help me. I love the last song that we sang, which was Keith Green's song, Oh Lord, You're Beautiful. Your face is all I seek. And when your eyes are upon this child, your grace abounds to me. Paul would pen... When sin abounds, grace abounds even more. But do we continue on in sin that it might manifest more? May it never be, God forbid. And it's true. Every single day should offer to us with the promise that God has invited a time to just turn around, redo it. We get so concerned about how much we put into something that we're afraid of the redo, or that God is tired of us having to redo it. And even with the heart that God has for Solomon, and we know the goofs of his father David, what David is noted for in having a heart for God is the turnarounds that he would be willing to make when he was in abject humiliation when he had such devastating moral failure. His domestic life was not a dream. It was a nightmare imposed upon himself for decisions that he made. But he seemed to have been able to say, even reconciling that mess, and it was, it was a mess, he would not allow it to ultimately affect or deter him from loving God and changing, even in the last second for God, that there would be the connection to communicate with God. It's important to see that. 
And so, walk before me as your father David did in integrity of heart. We do a heart check. I like pomegranate juice. It's supposed to be good for my heart. But that's not the heart check. That's just something I'm doing because what well, it says is good for my heart. So it's trusting the Lord. So if it's easier for me to grab a jar of pomegranate juice than ask God to do a heart check on me, I may have just made myself a little idol. It's so cutely formed in that bottle. It's not going to change things. And what I'm saying is it's easy to go to a default. Something else is just a little bit easier than going to God. And yet if God says he'll hear from heaven and he'll change the course of my life and he'll make a path for my life, then I'm a stupid person to defer any longer the solution. And I've been stupid. I don't think you guys have. But I have, and God heard from heaven when in a time I was able to do it. The heart's not right. I'm checking it in, Lord, to you. Integrity of heart, uprightness. I want to be upright men and women. Sometimes we spend too much time being down on ourselves and on everyone else when the remedy is simply being upright. It literally means a vertical position or connection with God in doing the things that please God. When you're down, you get back up. The Christian life isn't how perfectly you are walking in order to qualify. On the contrary, it's how many times will you get up from your fall to show the Lord you're into the walk. And it's an important discipline. It doesn't mean that it may be slower the next time to get up, but we need to be those people who are getting up and getting along, both with each other, but most importantly, in the long run to the finish line which God has charged us to do. We have that charge to go hard to the finish line. And with the influence that he's given to us to be highly persuasive, that there's no other God like God. There's no other God that can grant a nation reprieve over judgment. None. He's the one. Oh, to do according to all that I have commanded you. And if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then, in verse 5, I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But, verse 6, if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. 
and this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast it out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Verse 8, And as for this house which you, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Verse 9, they'll have an answer. Notice, and then they will answer, because they forsook the Lord their God and brought their fathers, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods. I so noted one of them, which is our cultural dilemma, the God of Moloch, and worship them and serve them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. An important distinction is as I talk with you, you need to know you're not being addressed as those who are not in a relationship with the Lord, within the beauty and construct of the church, and in the belief that the residency of the Holy Spirit is alive and active within you, as his word is. But when there's the projection of scripture, there cannot be the rejection of its implication. Change always is required of us, no matter where you're at, what you're going through. And God is not to blame. God is fair. When the commandments are spoken of here, both in the terms of statutes and judgments. The statutes are God's binding force. The scriptures declare that the love of God constrains us, meaning that we don't get to do what it is we want to do if it's contrary to what God is doing. So we've got to always find ourselves submitted to the parameters that God has given to us. And even when we hop that fence like a cat, that's one of the things that problems me about a cat. They can always get out of that place that they are to be secured in. The dog, love the dogs. Woof. Water, please. Food, please. Can I take a walk with you? Cats are, take a walk. They're telling me to take a walk. They're always looking for a way out, my cats are. And if I'm not careful of always knowing they're looking for a way out, they'll take that two inches of the door, and when it goes just a little bit more, they move through it and out into the wilds. Even when there's this dangerous freeway, I finally sent Everest out. I said, Everest, he escaped again. Get Maui. This could be bad if he doesn't come back. And he, it was awesome. I said, what are you doing? He was getting ready to go jump off the deck, hurdle a fence to go get the cat that I told him to. To some degree, I thought that was stupid. And then go, wait, that's honorable. That's a good way to go. If you die doing this, how noble of you. 
And I personally thought it was insane because I can never get the, but the cat dove into the hedge and Everest goes over there like Beastmaster. And all of a sudden, whoosh, grabbed it by the tail, hooked it by the belly, and we brought it back alive. And I was able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. My wife, she'll bring glory to me. <laughs> the deviation is uh, perhaps a distraction. But perhaps the illustration is important because Solomon is going to be found casting off restraint, moving away from the constraining pattern that God has told him, stay within my binding force. Don't deviate. He was already in that process because we know that he had already taken on a pagan bride, a princess from Egypt, the very place that God said, I've delivered my people from there. Why would you be influenced further from one who does not know me? And we know that this will lead him ultimately to other experiential relationships that are not knitted according to the pleasures of God. So the dream is important because it's intended to be a deep communique with Solomon. I wonder if he could do it over again, would he have asked the question that needed to be asked? Lord, am I vulnerable? Are you speaking to me because I'm vulnerable? And what is my midlife crisis the time in which so much has been done because you've done it to now, hmm, what more can I do? What other things could I get into? And of course, Ecclesiastes will be written on that fact that he never could find complete soul satisfaction for his soul in the relationship that his father was able to demonstrate in discouragement, dysfunction, calamity betrayals. David's heart always pursued the face of God. Don't go back to Egypt. No prophet there. There's no prophet there. You're not going to be rewarded for it, and God will not speak to you in that act of disobedience. You'll just realize a void The dream state, referring back to what it implies and what you know, is rapid eye movement. Apparently, when you are asleep, your eyes are just going, almost like shutters opening and closing, but your eyes are not opening. It's just the movement of your eyes. It's almost as if a reel is projected across the screens of your eyes as your brain is assimilating deep thoughts. So I'm not talking about the nightmare. I'm talking about a deep sleep. It's also known, though, as paradoxical sleep. It's a paradox, meaning that what is dreamt of is contrary to what you know. That kind of sounds like God. Well, how could I be asked of God to do this 
when it's completely contrary to what anybody believes about me or what I would even presume is available to me. The paradox means that it's unexpected. You haven't had to deal with it before or you've avoided it because the justification is it's not the way I roll. It's not the way I do things. It's not comfortable to me. Well, that's Christianity. There's a comfort in following the Lord for he is the comforter, but there are things that he asks you to do that bring great discomfort. It puts you at completely his disposal. And the things that at one time you prioritize are disposed of. The second visitation, praise God, he does it. And the third and fourth and fifth, you try to count how many times God has visited you. And perhaps you want the REAM state, the paradoxical state, but he's actually cut through the nightmare of where you're at in that subconscious area because that's where you've been. And he says, I can cut through that. I can give you clarity. Read my word. Dwell with my people. Ask me what you will, and I will grant you your heart's desire. I like that. God taught us Gamata for Solomon to know what he ought to. The schemata, the schematic for you and I that can be schemers is found in his word, from the pulpit, in your heart, what you know to be true. Cancel culture before culture tries to cancel you. Understand these times. Lord, why? The enemy whispers, global warming, buddy. Start getting your car sold and plug it in. It's not global warning. It's divine warning. Things will heat up. But if it's divinely the heat, it will be a pending transaction that takes place in which judgment has come. We're saved if you have a relationship with the Lord. Praise God. 